welcome to Unauthorized Disclosure. I am your host, Rania Kalik, uh, here with your other host, uh, Kevin Gastola. Hey, Kevin. Hey, everybody. Uh, Kevin and I are really excited to welcome to the show Deepa Kumar. Uh, she's the author of one of my favorite books, and I believe one of Kevin's favorite books as well. Uh, it's called Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire. And she's also an associate professor of media studies at Rutgers University. Hey, Deepa. Hi, Rania. Hi, Kevin. Thank you for having me on. Oh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, this time, you know, this couldn't be a more of a perfect time. I think, uh, Kevin, before we started recording, uh, Kevin was telling me earlier that, you know, by the, what did you say, Kevin, by the laws of... By the laws of news. By the laws of the news, uh, we have to start off by talking about the coverage of Gaza. Uh, Absolutely. What's in the news right now? And it's been insane. Um, you know, I'm sure you've been following it as well, uh, the way that... Palestinians, as always, have been portrayed as, especially, you know, Hamas has been portrayed as the suicidal organization that's responsible for using human shields, and then Palestinians all apparently, like, worship death and want to die and be martyrs. Uh, so I guess, can we, can you start off by talking a little bit about that? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the reason uh, this is in the particularly casualties uh, of Palestinians is in the news is because of the cold-blooded murder of the four young boys on the beach yesterday by uh, Palestinian boys, uh, by Israelis. And if you look at the framing of it, even the State Department is coming out and saying, blame Hamas, right? And you have to ask, you know, where does this framing actually come from? And in fact, there is a propaganda handbook that was produced back in 2009. It's called the Israel Project's 2009 Global Language Dictionary in which they have uh, a sort of step-by-step, five-step uh, approach, if you will, uh, about how Israeli spokespeople should talk about civilian casualties uh, in Gaza. So the first uh, speaking point is show empathy, right? In fact, I'm quoting from the handbook. It says, all human life is precious. We understand that the loss of one innocent Palestinian life is every bit as tragic as the loss of an Israeli life. Um, then go on to admission, which is the second step. We admit that Israel isn't always successful at preventing civilian casualty. Third step is effort, saying we're trying to stop civilian casualties, etc. But ultimately, it's about turning the tables. That's step five. Blame Hamas. Say that it's a tragedy that Hamas continues to want to, uh, you know, uh, perpetuate this uh, so-called war, uh, uh, whatever, uh, you know, because they didn't accept the ceasefire agreement. It's Hamas to blame for what's going on right now. And it's truly shocking and callous that that is the framework that has also been adopted by the U.S., uh, you know, spokespeople, so that we have very little empathy. We're not asked to feel sad for the innocent people who are being killed by Israeli gunfire. I mean, that's literally word for word uh, yesterday what the U.S. State Department uh, said. But exactly what you just mentioned was, you know, Hamas is responsible for putting people in danger. Uh, and it, yeah, it's really alarming that uh, that Israel is like that, you know, Israel's handbook for blaming Palestinians has been adopted. And I, I think, I, I, would, I would guess I would expand it to the way that the United States uh, media reacts, the U.S. media reacts when, you, you know, the United States commits crimes and kills, uh, kills you know, people in Yemen and, and Pakistan and by drones and the way that they're treated as well. I, I, I guess, could you, like, what, could you talk a little bit about the way that Israel has sort of been at the forefront of... I, I guess we would call the Islamophobia industry, as they call it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I'll just go back a little bit to the specific frameworks used by Palestinians in their propaganda and then talk about how that gets adopted by the U.S. in terms of how it sells its own war on terror. So, you know, some of the research that's been done around how uh, Palestine is covered in the Western media, there are about seven or eight frames that consistently get used to talk about uh, this conflict. I'll just mention three. First of all, what's completely absent is context. There is no indication that Palestinians are under occupation, that Israel is a colonial settler state. And therefore, when people respond to occupation, they are acting in self-defense. Instead, 
you know, the perverseness of this, and this is the second frame, is it's presented like as if Palestinians provoke Israel and Israel defends itself, which is why the current incursion is called Protective Edge. That's not a coincidence. That comes from a long, you know, propaganda uh, uh, orientation about how Palestinians provoke and uh, Israel protects and defends itself uh, and so forth. And finally, of course, there's the myth of the generous offer, you know, the idea that somehow all sorts of fabulous offers have been made, uh, including in this case, a ceasefire agreement, which Hamas was not even invited to come to uh, the table around. And when they rejected, because it's basically a return to the status quo, where 1.8 million Palestinians living in Gaza will continue to live in an open-air prison, and somehow they are to blame for the uh, situation. And by the way, I want to go back to that uh, propaganda handbook. Um, you know, there's some language which specifically says, don't use words like randomly rocketing Israel. Talk about these rockets as a deliberate attack, right? That's the extent to which this propaganda has been worked out. Now, in terms of the U.S. and uh, the U.S.'s war on terror, Absolutely. The uh, relationship particularly between the neoconservatives, right, who uh, were in power during the Bush administration, but who obviously uh, existed prior to the Bush administration, the relationship between the neocons and the Likud party in Israel is really the basis from which Islamophobia, particularly the association of Arabs with terrorism, comes into being. I'm working on another book right now where I develop some of the stuff that I already argued in the previous book, which is if you look at this development of the terrorist menace, it begins around the early 1970s, particularly after the incident at the Olympics in, uh, uh, in Germany, and how through the course of the 1980s, the racialization of terrorism occurs as a result of, you know, this sort of liquid neocon uh, media offensive and how the media, the news media, take their talking points from uh, particularly two very important conferences, one that happens in 1979 and the other that happens in 1984. These are international uh, counterterrorism conferences that, by the way, uh, 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 Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, who was the head of an institute that organized these conferences, actually presided over. So that's a short history. No, that's that's actually yeah, that's that's uh, that's actually a fascinating topic is the fact that Benjamin Netanyahu, who's now the prime minister of Israel, in case anyone doesn't know, uh, was in fact uh, one of the leaders in sort of you know, in sort of coming up with the way of framing terrorism as something that's you know, that's that's racialized. Um, but I know that we wanted to get to also to talking about uh, more some some of the ways that this has affected national security. I know Kevin has some questions about that. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess I'll begin specifically, and then we can always broaden out. But I wanted to get your comments on the story that came out from the Intercept, uh, I guess over a week ago. Now, um, naming uh, you know for the first time, really putting some focus on. Uh, specific Muslim Americans that have been targeted. So I, I guess we'll begin generally. What, what was your response to seeing this published? Well, uh, I knew beforehand, of course, that this was going to be uh, coming out. And in a way, I wasn't surprised because what you've seen is only the latest revelation that the NSA is also part of the spying game. Because we've already known, uh, for instance, that the NYPD was involved in systematically spying on Muslim Americans, not just in New York City, but in the tri-state area. We also know that the FBI, of course, is involved in such spying efforts. And what the recent leaks by uh, uh, you know, the NSA uh, uh, surveillance program shows is that this institution is yet another uh, of the security apparatus that's involved in this process of systematic spying and surveillance. So I think this is part of a larger picture of how Muslim Americans uh, or people who quote-unquote look Muslim or uh, brown people more generally have been cultivated as being a quote-unquote suspect population who simply because they are Muslim or if they happen to have political views that in some ways don't sit well 
with uh, what the U.S. thinks they should have, particularly if you're critical of U.S. foreign policy, then automatically you're seen as a potential terrorist, right? And that's the thinking not just in the NSA, but in the FBI, in the NYPD, and in the security apparatus more generally. And I guess the follow-up that I would ask is one of the things that was striking to me is how you had two major things that seemed to simultaneously come out of this story. You had you know, these named targets, you had their prominent positions and organizations, uh, and, 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 and who they were, their identities, their, their backgrounds. But then separately, they also had uncovered uh, this memo where apparently the, the NSA, in suggesting how people could uh, request that they would have authority to do this surveillance, uh, they would, you know, in the memo, the template put Muhammad Raghead in as uh, the target name. Um, it wasn't John Doe, um, mm-hmm. it was Muhammad Raghead. And but, but what I want to specifically have you address is how those were actually addressed in the media separately. It was as if you know, the, the racism, the, the racial slur there, the ethnic slur was one issue and then the issue of the targeting. But it would seem that the Islamophobia actually fuels this targeting of these people. Absolutely. Um, I mean, first of all, just to step back from your immediate question, we have to ask why it is that there's been so little mainstream media coverage of this most recent uh, NSA expose. Right? You look at all of the other stories that have leaked since 2013, and they have gotten quite a lot of play in the mainstream media, particularly you know, programs that indiscriminately collect up uh, signals intelligence from, quote-unquote, ordinary Americans. And then you look at this particular revelation, there's been really very modest coverage of this. And you have to ask the question, why? And it's because there is a widespread acceptance that Muslim Americans should be targeted, right? Um, And therefore, there's nothing here to look at, folks. Uh, This is how the NSA should be working, is the assumption and the understanding. And so Islamophobia, or let's call it what it is, anti-Muslim racism, I think is central not just to the thinking of the security establishment in terms of how they actually target people, but the wider uh, mentality as well within the corporate media. So I think that's where I would start this discussion um, around this particular revelation. Well, and then and I, I'll ask two parts, and then I know Ronnie will have some, some more to ask you here. Uh, but specifically, there's been this comparison drawn between what J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI was doing towards civil rights groups um, and anti-war groups back in the 1960s and this. But it would seem like, particularly in the press, and, and especially and particularly among national security journalists, that there is this, uh, and, and I think it is racist, this looking at these individuals and making these claims that they are not involved in advancing rights, that they are not similar to the sort of political leaders that were targeted by the national security state back in the 1960s. And that, to me, has been striking, but I I know that um, you were here in Chicago um, a a couple weeks ago speaking at the Socialism Conference, and and one of the things I know that you said was that you believe that that the security is the new means by which racism operates in the post-racial era, and this point that I'm making would seem to go to that. Um, Absolutely. You you raised so many points, I don't even know where to begin. (laughs) Um, Let's do a little historical account of the birth of the NSA, its spying operations, and bring that up to the present, because I think that might be a useful way to do this. Um, So the NSA gets formed in 1952, it is basic, It basically comes out of the mindset in the post-Second World War era where the national security state gets formed. And what uh, the National Security Act of 1947 establishes essentially a permanent defense and security establishment uh, in this country. And um, around the time of the Second World War, the first large-scale spying program called Project Shamrock was actually uh, begun. And in 1952, the NSA takes this over. And uh, you see another program come into being called Project Minaret, 
And particularly after the 1967 uh, march on, on the Pentagon, right, when anti-war sentiment begins to escalate quite uh, dramatically in this country, uh, people like Joan Baez, Jane Fonda, um, Martin Luther King Jr. become not only part of the FBI COINTELPRO, that is, uh, MLK was part of the FBI COINTELPRO surveillance program, but he's also now being targeted by the NSA through Project um, Minaret. And the point I made at the talk um, at the Socialism Conference is that if you look at the indiscriminate way in which the NSA is targeting and collecting information about people, its primary function really is to prevent any kind of threats to the agenda of empire, right? Anti-war movement, people critical of the war, you know, famously Martin Luther King would come out and speak out against the Vietnam War, calling the U.S. the greatest perpetrator of violence in the world and so on. So what is the NSA doing? It's trying to make sure that all criticism of the national security state of empire is kept under check. Um, and of course, it's not just a collection of information, right? The FBI and the COINTEL program actually tries to induce the suicide of MLK by, you know, revealing information about extramarital affairs and so on and so forth. So ultimately, surveillance is about social control. It is about telling people that you are being watched, you are being monitored, and should you act in ways that are socially unacceptable, you will be punished. But I just want to say one more thing about this, and that is that um, this doesn't necessarily work. People aren't always, you know, cowed by this kind of surveillance, because if you look at, for instance, one of the most uh, exciting things that has been happening off late is the proliferation of the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement that is raising enormous amounts of awareness about Israeli apartheid. And largely, it is uh, Arab-American, South Asian students, and some Jewish students who are part of this work. And so even though they know, particularly brown people know that they are the targets of surveillance, there's a way in which, you know, you reach a point where you say, I don't care anymore. I need to stand up for what's right. And, you know, this has been one of the most exciting movements that we've seen uh, in the last few years that's really bringing issues of social justice and rights for Palestinians and generally talking about U.S. complicity in Israeli aggression uh, uh, in the Middle East. Now, it's really interesting that you mentioned the BDS movement because it's like, if anything, um, I, I, you know, from, from where I'm sitting, it, it seems as though it's more of like an anti-racist movement. Uh, in general, in the kinds of things it's combating, especially on campuses. Um, and I Absolutely. I mean, just to say, I am so distressed by the Facebook and Twitter posts of, you know, right-wingers in Israel who have been, you know, talking about Palestinians in the most racist and dehumanizing ways, gathering chairs to watch the bombardment of uh Palestinian people, it's just, it's stunning the callousness and the dehumanization that's taking place right now. Yeah, and the fact that, you know, we have a media in this country that it's like, even though there's people on the ground in, you know, Jerusalem, where there's been lynch mobs roaming the streets for weeks chanting death to Arabs, uh, that gets very little play. It's, it's just, it's kind of fascinating how... Um, because, I mean, and what you do have in Israel, it's, it's interesting because I guess I want to ask you about the way that that Muslims are portrayed, right? And, and mm -hmm. Islamophobia and the ways that plays into, oh, Muslims are these fanatics. That's uh, right. And how the that, culture of martyrdom. Exactly. And then how that lets, like, because, I mean, there's, there's fanatic Christians and fanatic Jews. And, I mean, there's fanatics in all religions. But how, when it comes to, especially, like, when it comes to Christianity or when we talk about Israel and we have, you know, we have an extremist right-wing uh, you know, uh, right-wing young Jews, like, ro roaming the streets, chanting death to Arabs, how that gets watered down in, in contrast to the way that Muslims are portrayed. Absolutely. I mean, let's face it. The systematic propaganda war uh, and the construction of Islamophobia, which I detail in uh, the Islamophobia book that you mentioned, has a long history, right? And it's not just something that's cultivated in the political sphere, but in the news media, as well as in films, you know, film after film, show brown people, show Arabs as being these bloodthirsty, irrational fanatics bent on attacking uh, Jewish people, bent on attacking the West, and so on. So it's no 
wonder then that somebody like Jake Tapper on mm -hmm. CNN would excuse, uh, you know, the bombing and the bombardment that's going on right now by using the language of the culture of martyrdom, right? And you think about that for a second. What does it say? It says that Muslims somehow want to die and therefore the Palestinian people, the innocent people, the civilians who are being uh, killed want to because they are so sort of brainwashed by supposedly Islamic uh, culture of martyrdom. I mean, this is blatant racism, the kind of racism that goes back to, uh, you know, uh, colonialism, classic colonialism and European colonialism in the 19th century, which basically sees the conflict between the West and the East as one that involves cultural conflicts, right? They are the barbarians. They are people who are not as, you know, advanced as we are. And therefore, if we rough them around and if we kill them, that's okay. So, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot your question. Oh, no, I was like, no, 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 those are all excellent points. And I guess, like, my, I guess, you know, that's a, my question is how in response to that, I mean, how other kinds of extreme, you know, religious extremism yes, goes excused yes. and watered down Absolutely. and sort of ignored. Absolutely right. I mean, if we do, again, a historical analysis of this, what you see is that since the 1970s, um, you have seen the rise of, not only Jewish fundamentalism, but you've seen the rise of Christian fundamentalism. These are the folks who would actually give the uh, base of support for the Reagan uh, elections. You also see the rise of Hindu fundamentalism in India. Currently, you have a Hindu fundamentalist government in power. In other words, you cannot see uh, Muslim Islamic fundamentalism in isolation from the rise of all of these other kinds of fundamentalism, but that's precisely what goes on. And the violence of these right-wing forces is always and continuously downplayed. I mean, it's a historic fact, for instance, in the United States, that right-wing extremists in this country are responsible for far more acts of violence than uh, by Muslim American citizens or permanent uh, residents uh, in this country. Uh, and yet that's not, you know, this reality and this truth is not the one that's put forward. You know, I, I give talks at various universities and community forums. And one of the questions that I uh, sometimes ask is, how many people do you think that Muslim Americans are responsible for killing in the United States? And I'm, I'm always amazed to hear the answer. You know, people will say uh, 10,000 or they'll say 5,000, what have you. Wow. When, in fact, a study by the, uh, uh, the Triangle Center uh, in um, North Carolina shows that Muslim Americans are actually responsible for the deaths of 33 people in the decade after 9-11. So there's really a propaganda war, if you will, to project Muslim Americans as being these, you know, fifth columnists inside this country, whereas the actual violence of right-wingers in this country and the far greater number of people that they're responsible for, uh, you know, perpetrating violence on and killing and so on and so forth gets completely ignored. Uh, we're, we're sort of jumping around a little bit, but I think this is an important question. Um, these these five people who agreed to the story to let their identities be known, um, there were others that said to The Intercept, presumably, they did not want their identities to be known. And I think in addressing the kind of racism that has come in, in ignoring what the significance is of this story, it, it's probably good to see if you would take a few moments to address, you know, what it means to be a target of the national security state, because I think fundamentally people lack the empathy. They, they don't even understand what it means to take on this stigma of being an NSA target. Right. Um, there were 200 uh, email addresses that uh, the Intercept article says that it had of uh, U.S. persons who were actually targets of uh, uh, the NSA. And as you correctly point out, Kevin, they only profiled uh, the stories of five people as opposed to the other 195. I actually happen to know personally one of the five people who was a target, Professor Hoshang Amir Ahmadi. He is a professor of uh, international relations at Rutgers University. He used to uh, chair, he used to direct the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, of which I am an affiliated professor 
And so I have exchanged many emails with Professor Amir Abhudi. I have, you know, been to his office many times and uh, had interactions with him. I, I don't know if we necessarily share the same worldview or attitude towards Iranian politics or what have you. But one of the things that occurred to me, seeing his name, is how myself and my emails yeah. to Hoshang have probably been collected by the NSA. And I don't know whether it's just my emails to Hoshang. It, uh, uh, that is to say, only the emails I sent to him, because it's not very clear what the purview is. It could be that all of my emails were also sucked in. It could be that all of my digital communications, my um, you know, Facebook posts, my Twitter posts, and so on and so forth could have been collected, which I find immensely offensive. This is my personal life. I have a right to have a private life and to think that, you know, my information was scooped up in a way that is now available not just to the, you know, thousands of NSA contractors, as Edward Snowden has shown, but to probably tens of thousands of intelligence analysts around the world because the U.S. shares its intelligence with, uh, you know, its uh, allies. And so this is, you know, this is, and, and even though I'm not a target, or I don't know if I'm a target, this is, this, this, this is, you know, strikes me as just completely wrong. But I can't imagine what it must feel like to be Faisal Gill, to be Asim Gafoor, to be Aga Saeed, to be Nehad Awad, and so on. Um, and to know that every aspect of your life has been recorded, even though all of these people have led, as the Intercept article put it, highly public, outwardly exemplary lives, you know. And this really, we have to constantly go back to how uh, MLK, Martin Luther King, who, you know, if there's anyone you can call uh, uh, an extreme pacifist, it would be King. And yet here his life was systematically, uh, you know, uh, recorded and his private details recorded and all the rest of it. And then, of course, there's the threats that come with it. What could they do? How could they manipulate you? Um, how could they get you to do things that you otherwise would not uh, because they have all this information on you? But the other thing uh, that is important to me, and I question that I have not heard journalists put to other people, um, I think even Congress people, though I don't expect them to ask this question, they should ask this question as well. But knowing what I know, and I, and I know you know this as well, of how the Muslim communities are infiltrated by FBI, infiltrated by law enforcement and spied upon, and how they are, are forced into situations and becoming informants, I sort of wondered if, you know, you know in the case of Asim Ghafoor, as a lawyer, he's not maybe the target, but they developed a pretext to target him so they could go through his emails and get to other individuals. And, and I think that's the racism in it, that they believe they could get away with that because nobody's going to challenge them. That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of, uh, you know, uh, human, paid human informants. I mean, we've talked largely about signals intelligence, which is surveillance of digital uh, communication, but the human intelligence part of it, which is informants, undercover agents, and so on, and how uh, the NSA, by in precisely the ways that you discuss, get to and blackmail people to becoming informants within their community is also something that absolutely merits discussion. I mean, the FBI alone has 15,000 paid informants. It has 10,000 intelligence analysts working on counterterrorism. The NYPD, uh, its uh, intelligence and counterterrorism division has 1,000 officers. It has a $100 million budget. In other words, systematically, every aspect of, you know, uh, Muslim American citizens' lives is uh, being recorded and then being used. I mean, you have to ask, why, why are people being entrapped, Right. If you look at the research on the so-called foil terror plots, the vast majority of these foil terror plots are actually instigated by the FBI, who had the FBI not provided the plot, the equipment, and everything, this would not have happened. It's because of these warped racist theories that the security establishment has, particularly the theories of radicalization, which say that uh, there's a four-step process that one goes through uh, where if you become, you know, religious, let us say you're a man and you sprout a beard, you start wearing religious uh, 
clothing, you're automatically on a step towards becoming a jihadist, right? And for them, in the intelligence community, rather than wait for the attack, what they've done is they justify sending agents provocateurs into communities to entrap people so that they can catch them before they do anything, right? This is like the film Minority Report, where the so-called precog unit actually attempts to catch people before they commit a crime. And of course, in this case, it's a highly racist logic that somehow all Muslims, because of the supposed culture uh, of Islam, are on a fast track towards uh, terrorism. It's really incredible to me how much, uh, how much, you know, this, this, all of this framing, uh, works in like letting the U.S. and other nations off the hook for their horrific policies that actually, uh, provoke a lot of the violence. Absolutely right. I mean, it's, you know, uh, again, to come back to the question of context, you have to always ask, what is it that prompts a small number of people to actually take up arms and to, uh, you know, commit the kind of acts that they actually do. And when you ask that question and when you look at political violence, what's always absent is state terrorism. The fact that the United States government, as Martin Luther King put it, is in fact the greatest purveyor of violence around the world. I mean, look at Iraq. The sanctions regime um, killed over 1.5 million Iraqis, of which half a million were children. The war in 2003 led to the deaths of uh, about a million Iraqi people. Now, think about what that does to people who live in the region, the sense of injustice that they feel at the actions of U.S. imperialism. And of course, some of them will go off and join the only kind of resistance uh, that is on offer, which is the uh, Islamists, which is people like ISIS and so on, whose politics I absolutely disagree with. But you can understand why someone whose whole family is wiped out and so on and sees that this is the only thing on offer might actually do that. I mean, the CIA knows this. They developed a concept called blowback, where they know that their actions around the world will eventually come back and affect uh, the United States. And yet they continue uh, with these kind of actions. And of course, the media are completely blind to the larger violence perpetrated by the U.S. and by Israel that might prompt a handful of people to then uh, you know, seek out these forms of uh, uh, blowback. Which is really incredible, considering we live in a country that was supposedly founded by people who, like, rose up very, very violently because they, you know, their taxes weren't representing them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but no, that's, that's a great point because it, it does seem like, in, in the sense, I mean, I don't, I don't know how I feel about, you know, ISIS is horrible, and I feel like Absolutely. it's sort of like the, it's sort of, you know, the, um, the worst of what we've created Absolutely. in the Middle East. But at the same time, a lot of what, a lot of this Islamophobia, you know, is used to um, discredit and demonize anti what are actually anti-colonial struggles uh, that, you know, we glorify from the past. But you right. know, now they're, you know, now they're just like violent, irrational, you know, it, it's, 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 you know, it's striking how, how convenient that I, is. I think the, the thing, the missing uh, link here is how the United States government actually systematically supported, trained, provide arms and ammunition and so on mm -hmm. to Islamists. They didn't emerge out of the blue. The U.S.'s policy right from 1958 onwards is that it's with the Eisenhower Doctrine was that secular nationalism in the form of Nasserism, Ba'athism, or uh, Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran was actually a threat to the U.S.'s interests in the Middle East, which are fundamentally about oil. And so, therefore, how to create a Middle East that would actually be more pliant to U.S. imperialism? And Islamists were seen to be the solution, right? And so the idea was to create Saudi Arabia to project, a, a, you know, an Islamic pope, as they called it, that would act as a counter to secular nationalism. So, in other words, the U.S. has played no small role in actually marginalizing anti-colonial, secular, left-wing alternatives, which then creates the space for right-wing fundamentalist movements to actually come in. And let's not forget that Hamas, 
and the precursor organization to Hamas, after all, was given a green light by uh, Israel for exactly the same reason, in that they wanted to marginalize the PLO, they wanted to marginalize the secular anti-colonial movement, uh, uh, and, and this is why they, you know, they gave uh, support to Hamas and its precursor organization. Well, the last question that I, I want to ask you is just if you have any uh, a, a reaction or, or a comments or any context for the fact that we saw a, a number of Muslims here in this country um, decide that they were going to attend the White House this week for the, the dinner, the, the iftar, um, that was held by President Barack Obama. Yeah, that is a really unfortunate uh, turn of events. Um, I personally don't know anyone who actually uh, attended, and uh, you know, I'd be interested to see the list of names. But the Muslim American community in this country finds itself in a very awkward position. On the one hand, there are people who believe that if only we support the U.S. government's efforts uh, internationally and we cooperate with its domestic counterterrorism program, maybe they will stop the Islamophobia. Maybe they will stop the indiscriminate um, surveillance, spying, entrapment, and everything else that's going on within the Muslim American uh, community. And I think I, I must respectfully disagree with that strategy because what winds up happening is that people, whether they need to or not, become collaborators with empire. Because the kind of community policing programs that you see, for instance, in Minnesota and elsewhere that um, Harun Kundanani talks about in his book, The Muslims Are Coming, is where uh, Muslim American leaders actually get co-opted to present an official form of Islam that is acceptable to uh, the U.S. government. I mean, this is a, a strategy that they've taken up, particularly since 2005 uh, onwards, is to use people within the community, the so-called, quote-unquote, good Muslims, to go after the, quote-unquote, bad Muslims. And this is a self-defeating strategy. This is not one that makes Muslim Americans safe. It's actually one that strengthens the hand of the national security apparatus. So to me, it is a huge mistake that Muslim American leaders attended the iftar dinner because I don't know what they were expecting to accomplish because what wound up happening is that they got a long lecture on uh, everything that the U.S. is doing that's good, including lectures by uh, Israeli spokespeople uh, trying to convince the delegation that Israel's position uh, is the right one in the current uh, uh, conflict that's going on. Well, on that note, uh, I think we are out of time. Uh, and Kevin, is there anything else you wanted to ask? No, this is, you know, thank you for giving us so much of your time to talk about uh, these very important issues. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for joining Welcome to a short discussion portion for this week's episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. Uh, if you can hear background noise, uh, that's because I'm recording this from the Hackers on Planet Earth conference that's happening uh, this weekend. So I apologize for the background noise, uh, but we had not planned on doing a discussion portion. And then Israel made this decision to escalate their assault and uh, do a ground invasion into Gaza. So I thought it was necessary for us to talk a little bit about this development in this week's episode. Uh, so, Rania, can you give us uh, an update on, on what's happening here? Yeah, so uh, Gaza has been being uh, bombed mercilessly by Israel for uh, about almost almost two weeks now. Um, and a couple days ago, Israel launched its ground invasion. So troops actually, Israeli, Israeli soldiers actually went into Gaza. Uh, and uh, and it, everything has escalated even more since then. In the past two days alone, more over. I mean, two days alone haven't been haven't even ended yet. Uh, the first two days of the of the ground invasion, over 100 Palestinians have been killed, uh, and a lot, a large number of those who have been killed. I believe the death, the death toll right now is uh, the Gaza Health Ministry is reporting. Uh, the Gaza Health Ministry is reporting um, 343 people killed and I believe like 2,500 injured. Uh, but that number obviously is, you know, not exactly reliable because it's rising. So, so, um, 
so intensely every, you know, every hour the death toll climbs. Uh, there are reports, according to several human rights organizations, that 20% of those killed are uh, children, uh, including the injured. About one third of those uh, of the casualties are children. Um, so yeah, there's been at least 71 or 73 children. I'm sorry, uh, that have been killed. In this conflict, uh, that's more than uh, than actual Palestinian uh, fighters have been killed uh, by Israel. Uh, so this is, I mean, it's the, you know, this is really a war on children, and, and it's really horrific. I mean, all the pictures we see coming in. Uh, this week, a lot happened. Um, there were four children who were who were killed uh, on a beach in Gaza as they were playing, and they just happened to be killed in front of several international. Journalists who were stationed at the hotel, uh, right on the beach, and so that made huge headlines. I'm sure most of you heard about this, um, and uh, the, you know some of the fallout from that was you know that these four children uh, who were killed, uh, the way that Israel framed it was that it was Hamas's fault, even though Israel's the one that killed them. Um, and I know Kevin, you wanted to talk a little, little bit, about, you wanted to talk about this because the U.S. State Department, and the, the Obama administration entirely has basically agreed with this. Uh, with this idea that anybody who is killed by Israel in Gaza is the fault of Hamas. Uh, and so that basically absolves Israel of any of the crimes it's committing, including targeting and killing, including and targeting and massive, like, you know, uh, carrying out massacres of children in front of literally like dozens of major media outlets. I, I think it's important for people to know just how much this is Israeli propaganda that the State Department is pushing here. Um, it's not limited to them. I mean, I, I just saw that in the Neset there are politicians that say that Hamas is uh, committing self-inflicted genocide. Isn't that Oh, correct? yeah. So um, uh, Naftali Bennett, who is, I believe, Israel's economy minister. I should probably double-check that just so I'm not telling you something that's not true. But that's but, a, I think they're right. Yeah, I believe he's Israel's economy minister. He, I mean, he just, like, he went on, he's, like, part of the right, right, like, the far right-wing uh, party in Israel. Uh, and he went on CNN on, uh, to talk to Wolf Blitzer, uh, and he basically he said that Hamas is kidding, ma committing massive self-genocide. Uh, he basically talked about Israel killing all the people they've killed and referred to it as, as, as Hamas butchering its own people. Uh, so this is, I mean, this is like a ludicrous talking point, this idea that, first of all, I mean, the idea that you're, you're basically accusing the people of committing of committing of asking you to commit genocide against them. Like, this is, the, I mean, that's the most insane, absurd, ta like, Hasbara talking point I've ever heard before. And uh, it's so pervasive. It was uh, real time with Bill Maher last night. I missed that. I missed that because I couldn't. The conservative, the conservative guest, I mean, I'm just going to summarize. We don't need to actually quote because it's not even necessary and it'd be too much to dignify what Bill Maher actually said. But it's just, you know, between him and the conservative guest from The Daily Caller and uh, the audience, uh, the audience applauding loudly for oh, these. Dear. And then J Jane Harmon of the Woodrow Wilson Center, you know, the liberal hawkish think tank that uh, these people work at now. And uh, they're all suggesting that it's Hamas to blame for all of the destruction. And um, one of the things that I saw that, you know, really made me want to raise this on the podcast this week was this piece of writing at Al Jazeera English. Uh, one of the writers is Nev Gordon. I uh, forget the other person's name, but they talk about the human shielding of Gaza. Real quick, Nev Gordon is actually a professor in Israel, and he's a part of, I believe, the uh, the Boycott from Within movement, uh, which is Israelis who, um, you know, agree asking the world to boycott their own country uh, until yeah. justice for Palestine. But anyways, go ahead. But yeah, I mean, you'll, I, I know you'll have a reaction to this, but but generally, it's just very, very powerful because what I saw in the uh, I'm not going to take time to, to criticize the New York Times here. I'm just going to raise this as a as a thing to add context in the New York Times write up on the invasion. They quoted um, is it, it's Lieutenant Colonel Lerner, isn't that right? Um, he's, Yo, God, uh, he's the worst, Peter. Yeah, Lerner, well, yeah. but he was saying was, you know, his advice to people in Gaza was basically to just keep away from any infrastructure that they might think is being used against the state no, of they Israel. Say, they say Hamas infrastructure, which could mean anything, literally. No, 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 yeah. no, this quote was exactly general. It was just 
just any just any infrastructure you think is being used against the state of Israel. But you know, I mean, you and I both know um, that. How are you supposed to know? I mean, they they put out that propaganda with uh, the the images of, of talking about what Hamas might be doing in your home, what what might they be doing in your hospitals, your schools, um, and they they think that all of those locations are legitimate military targets. So, anyways, this piece is very powerful. Uh, it's something that I was trying to work toward, maybe writing a a sort of essay like they did, but it's, it's way better than anything I could have done, and I, I highly recommend it. And obviously, Rania, if you have anything you'd like to add. Well, just that, for those listening, to add some context to this, the, you know, the Gaza Strip is a very tiny piece, like, it's a very small piece of land on the coast uh, that's basically uh, sandwiched between Israel, uh, Egypt, and the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it's very, so it's, it's something like 27 kilometers long. And like, uh, I think it's like three miles wide. I mean, it's very small, and it is. Ba- I mean, it's a. It's a basically like an open air prison where 1.7 million Palestinians are trapped. They cannot leave. Uh, I mean, very few of them can leave. Uh, Israel controls everything that goes in and out. Uh, Israel controls Gaza by land, air, and sea, with the help of Egypt, uh, which shares a small uh, a small border with Gaza. Uh, Egypt has completely sealed that off and is actually like on the side of Israel more than ever right now, Egypt's uh, dictatorial regime is on Israel's side. Um, and so the people of Gaza have been living under uh, what's, what amounts to an illegal siege for the past seven years uh, for the crime of electing, democratically electing Hamas to, gov- to, to, to govern. Um, this, I mean, the, you know, this was an election that was pushed by the Bush administration. I mean, it was literally the Bush administration in Israel did not like the results of this election. And since then, Gaza has been under siege. And uh, I mean, this is an area where, you know, it's one of the most densely populated areas on Earth that Israel's bombing. And I mean, on top of bombing urban centers, which is bad enough, you have what, you know, Kevin was just talking about, which is Israel. Um, widening the the definition of what constitutes a legitimate military target. So they're saying schools are a fair game, homes are a fair game, because Hamas, Hamas, Hamas hides there, you know. Hospitals are a fair game. Israel has repeatedly bombed hospitals. One of them was reduced to absolute rubble, uh, a hospital that was treating... Uh, like orthopedic and peri- and ger- or ger- it was like a rehab facility that was treating like geriatric patients, um, who were most of whom were paralyzed and on breathing machines uh, that were still left there that had to like evacuate. I mean, this area is so densely populated, and also because of the siege, it is not equipped, like even a little bit equipped, to be handling the kind of um, the kind of injuries. And I mean, severe injuries that are coming in. Uh, the you know the Gaza health sector was just had to declare a, a health emergency uh, mm-hmm. a few days ago because they they were already running so low on supplies because of the siege on basic medicines. Uh, and now you know you've got people coming in with limbs limbs having been amputated by like experimental weapons that Israel's using, uh, which is often the case in Gaza. Gaza also you know to keep this in mind is Gaza functions as like a, a, a an involuntary uh, weapons laboratory for Israel. Israel, over, you know, over the past seven years has repeatedly tested weapons in Gaza, um, really horrific weapons that cause injuries that are like non-treatable. Um, so, you know, that all of these things are things that need to be kept in mind. And on top of that, just a reminder that, you know, the and I think I usually always say this when I talk about Gaza, but it's so important to emphasize, is this is a refugee population. 80% of the people in Gaza are refugees. Uh, they're refugees because they were kicked out of their homes in Israel because they're the wrong ethnicity. Uh, and so those lot of those rockets that the entire world, all world leaders condemn Hamas for shooting, uh, those rockets are being launched into areas and in, in, in mostly towns that used to be Palestinian towns. And they're being launched by people who are um, descendants of the people who were forcibly, forcibly expelled from those towns. Uh, so, you know, that's really, really important context to understand because in the end, You've got a case of settler colonialism, uh, where you know the, the way the world is, the way the world and in, in the international community is responding amounts to, you know, uh, screaming at an indigenous people uh, for you know for responding violently to the past 66 years of ethnic cleansing and massacres that have been committed yeah. against them. And uh, I think the last thing we could close on here is the important issue of journalists who it seems 
are being removed from their position as reporters in Gaza for the fact that they're human beings who react to what they're experiencing on the ground. And I think there's no other way that you could possibly put it. I mean, these are people who are seeing dead children brought in to hospitals with their heads exploded open. Uh, these are people who are, you know, they, they, they're meeting these kids and they have sympathy for mothers who are crying afterwards and they express it on Twitter or they express rage that Israelis are so excited about the bombs that are falling. And well, are... Let's, let's be a little specific here. So you're talking yeah. about uh, NBC News correspondent uh, Eamon Moyaldeen. Uh, he is an incredible reporter. He's actually, uh, I, you know, I remember, I, you know, I remember him well from 2009, uh, 2008, 2009, the Castlet invasion. Uh, which was, you know, a, a, another horror show uh, in Gaza. And uh, him and uh, and Shireen Tadros were like these two were working for Al Jazeera and English. And they were the only people like they were like two of literally a handful of journalists. They might have been the only two Western journalists that were actually in Gaza because Israel sealed Gaza off from journalists. Uh, so they were literally like the eyes and ears uh, the only reason we got to even see most of the news we saw during during that the, the, that three week assault, uh, and he's repeatedly covered Gaza as, as well as other war zones, and and so he uh, basically the other, I mentioned the four people the four children who were killed on the beach. Uh, Eamon was like tweeting uh, these viral tweets about how he had been playing you know minutes earlier with soccer with these children on the beach, and uh, and you know he. And, you know, not long after, I mean, he got, you know, he was one of the journalists that really made this go viral, uh, made it into headline news. Uh, he and he, you know, he took pictures and filed video reports of the family's response and reaction. And it was really awful and, you know, really like heartbreaking and soul crushing, all of it. And so uh, hours later, uh, NBC executives pulled him out of Gaza and replaced him with Richard Engel. Uh, and they cited security concerns, uh, which doesn't make any sense. Um, so it's pretty clear. I mean, I you know, like we can only speculate because we don't know. But I think it's also important to note that the NBC executive that made this decision, uh, Mondo Waste reported that um, that uh, God, what did he say? I have to like go find this now because it's really important. But why don't you tell him about Diana Magne from CNN while I find this? Yeah, well, so Diana's story, and thanks for getting specific. Diana's story is that uh, she was in Siduro, uh, right? And she was on the hill that overlooks, and you can see into Gaza, and the bombs are dropping, and you can see, um, I guess, what to an American they would be forgiven for mistaking as fireworks, because it's just incredible how much shelling is going on. And uh, she was told to watch the words that she said to be careful with how she she chose to uh, speak about what was happening and was threatened uh, by the people who are just filled with bloodlust, who are out there on the hill enjoying the bombs as they're dropped on the people of Gaza. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really unbelievable. This, I mean, it's like she, she was being threatened. And she tweeted, like, what I thought was a totally reasonable tweet. Could you imagine... If uh, like if if U.S. journalists were pulled or not U.S. I, I don't even think she's she's def I don't know if she's American because she has like a British or Australian accent. I don't know. But could you imagine if Western journalists were pulled from Israel and got, or, or pulled from Palestine because of the awful things they say about Palestinians? Like I mean, actually, <laughs> actually, let, let, let's let's put it in a domestic U.S. Uh, context just so people can understand how absurd this is that she would get removed. What if an anarchist had threatened her to not report on what they were doing as they beat in a police car? Um, you know, that would just be absurd that you would get in trouble for calling someone scum. Obviously, if people do this, you might expect this kind of a reaction. Absolutely. I don't understand what the big problem is, but I do understand. It's because it's about, I mean, you've got U.S. media, you've got U.S. media companies basically doing damage control for Israeli, for Israel, like doing damage control for Israeli PR purposes. And it's really, really disgusting. Um, so what I did want to, I did want to note real quick, which I'm still, God, I'm still looking for it because I'm so, oh, I, oh, here, I found it, here. I found it. Okay, found go ahead. It. So, um, so the, one of the, uh, so this is from Mondo Weiss. Um, um, okay. So Comcast is NBC's parent company. It's chairman, Brian Roberts and executive VP, David Cohen have both been supportive of Israel, talking about NBC. 
Uh, and I'm talking, I'm going back to the whole Eamon Moyaldine being removed. Roberts participated in Israeli athletic competitions when he was young. Cohen is a leader of Philadelphia Jewish organizations who cares deeply about Israel. As we reported three years ago, Cohen was said by a Philadelphia Jewish publication to be genetically hardwired uh, to head the pro-Israel federation group in the city. Um, and so basically these are like, but there's one quote in particular that was really interesting and that's that, in, in, uh, that's that his boss at NBC basically rallied, quote, Jewish passion for Israel when it is physically threatened. Um, so that's what he believes is important for Jews to do when Israel is physically threatened, uh, is to rally support and Jewish passion. And so um, I think it's important to note that like these are, these are the executives who made this decision, uh, I assume, to, to remove him from from Gaza because he was doing too much uh, humanizing and of uh, Palestinians and you know he has too much empathy apparently, uh, so I think that that's really I mean it's just so striking to me and really I, I you know we know we we know obviously that you know Israel and Palestine are very skewed and distorted in the mainstream press but just the amount and like the the sheer level of censorship that we've been seeing over this issue while Gaza's being like slaughtered is just I mean it's just you know absurd it's almost like a cartoon and then one final point on this is just to say uh, there's this forum that's been going around that people have been sharing the text of where journalists have to sign away any liability if the state of Israel bombs them and happens to kill them or wound them while they're out uh, reporting. And, uh, you know, again, I guess you have to wonder uh, if someone who was a Western journalist actually did get hurt. Um, and I say Western because I know that journalists in who are based in Gaza have already been killed and uh, that there are people from the Middle East who have already been killed. And, you know, most people here in the United States couldn't give a crap about that. But um, if a Western journalist got bombed, uh, they're probably going to blame Hamas for it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, I mean, that, that was the interesting thing about the, I mean, these children who were killed on the beach. Uh, well, you know, one thing I will say, it's really, it's, it's really great to see so many, um, so much. The reporting ha has been interesting because it's, you know, there's been children being killed and it's really horrific that reporters have to be a little bit honest. And they have been. I mean, the reports by, there's a lot of reporters who are on the ground in Gaza who I think are really, really brave. I mean, they work for mainstream media outlets and they're doing wonder, they're really putting out wonderful work. But I'm still seeing this, like, this, uh, you know, this, this sort of giving Israel the benefit of the doubt, like, mm -hmm. oh, these, like, yeah. sort of referring to these children as the children who are being killed as, like, you know, almost like they're collateral damage, like it's a mistake, it's an accident. Um, and I think it's like, you, people need to understand, this isn't an accident. This is how Israel does war. Like, this is, this is what Israel does. It's like a part of their military doctrine is to deliberately target civilian infrastructure and civilians. Um, and I'm, I'm not making that up. It's a thing. It's like it's a but, but you know, go ahead. It's, it's the punishment, right, isn't it? I mean, the idea is that you would deliberately target and kill children, women, and civilians because they will get angry and perhaps you'll drive it into them that, that they need to turn. And they're trying to get the people to revolt on Hamas. Isn't that the, that's, the, the yeah, goal? That's a part of the strategy. It's called the Dahia Doctrine. And it, it, it's named after the Dahia neighborhood in Beirut that in 2006 Israel completely flattened um, in, uh, in its war on Lebanon. And the whole, I mean, it, it, you can find Israeli military leaders saying this. It's not me making this up. It's, they say this openly. Um, is that, you know, it's the idea that in war with Hamas and Hezbollah, uh, they need to, Israel must, you know, apply disproportionate, uh, overwhelming force against civilian infrastructure and government infrastructure. And so that's why Israel is bombing water treatment facilities uh, and destroying what little is left of the water system in Gaza. Already, the water is like 90 percent undrinkable. Uh, you know, the, Gaza, I mean, right now, I believe there's like a, a hundred, a thousand people at least in Gaza and maybe more. I could be like totally getting that number wrong. Uh, but that is actually it has no has has no access to water at the moment. That's uh -huh. I mean, and that because of the bombing right now. Um, that's why they target electricity lines. That's why they target hospitals. That's why they target schools. I mean, that's why they target police. I will, you know, Gaza, they, earlier this week, I mean, God, it seems like a year ago this happened because it's like every day there's new massacres. It's hard to keep up. But earlier this week, uh, Israel targeted, or uh, last week, I should say, uh, Israel targeted, um, 
for targeted for for assassination with a bomb the chief of police in Gaza um, and and they didn't kill him they ended up killing 18 members of his family though that's yeah. one single family um, and you know and this, that's not new in 2008 uh, 2008 when Israel launched operation Kasled the first thing they did was bomb a graduation ceremony of Gaza police cadets uh, and they killed like 225 people or some insane number like that um, and they said that these were that what Israel says Israel Israel labels uh, police as militants as fighters uh, so yeah there you have it the biggest cop killer in the world is Israel and apparently Gaza is not allowed to have a police force but the point is is that in Gaza any everything that is publicly funded everything that is you know part of government is is considered Hamas infrastructure because Hamas is not just a militant organization. Hamas is also a is also the political governing party in Gaza. So like the hospital, the health ministry is considered the Hamas health ministry, you know, like it's like that's how everything that's how Israel sees everything. So it's important to understand and recognize that because that is how Israel justifies targeting like places where families are sleeping and where children are. Uh, and, you know, it's just, God, it's all so insane that this is, like, allowed to continue with the full support of the U.S. government. I mean, these are your tax dollars. If you're American, these are your tax dollars at work here. I mean, Israel could not be doing this without uh, U.S. support. Uh, you, the U.S., you know, Barack Obama, if he wanted to, could end this tomorrow. All he would have to do is threaten to... Uh, is threatened to stop giving Israel spare parts for Hellfire missiles, like, you know, I mean, or for helicopters. Like, it's just, that's all you would need to do, and this would be over. But instead, you have, you know, you have a, a, a government right now dem led by Democrats that, is, if anything, seems to be more supportive of Israel than even the Bush administration was. So, as my closing thought is just that, you know, I... I, I've dropped what I'm doing. I, I wanted to make sure that we got this into the podcast, even though I've been at this conference. And I just think the images that are coming out and, and, and a lot of the important work that people are doing, and, and especially just citizens who are there in Gaza who are talking about what they're experiencing on the ground, it's just amazingly powerful. And it, it jolts me. And I just wanted anyone who, who hears this to know that you know, you're reaching people. And I can tell that the, the, the truth of what's happening in Gaza is getting out because the one silver lining is that there are tens of thousands of people that are overflowing into streets in other countries that are protesting what Israel is doing. Um, there are people who are having demonstrations. You've got the world leaders of Latin American countries speaking out, and you have Chile deciding to divest and end free trade with Israel, and, and uh, the, the whole BDS movement is just becoming like, it's just this whole ignition has been hit because of what Israel has chosen to do. And I'll remind everybody who's listening, if you, I mean, uh, you know, if you're like feeling helpless just watching this happen, uh, civil society organizations in Gaza released like an urgent appeal for people of the world who, you know, people of conscience around the world to, you know, to join, to, to intensify boycott, divestment and sanction against Israel, uh, to, to intensify BDS uh, in the face of what's happening in Gaza right now. So, I mean, that's one thing that you really, you know, that yeah, that can be done and that, you know, and I always think it's important to, to ask what people, are, you know, people who are suffering, uh, what we can, what they want us to do. And that is something that they're asking us to do. So, and the doctors too, the doctors as well. Yeah. If you listen to what they have to say. They want BDS. They want more people to get involved. Uh, they want a call to end the siege. They want people to, to, to just, you know, go to work, um, advocate for these people. So I, I guess that's where we will leave it for this week. Uh, anything else, Rania? Um, no, I think we're good. Uh, you know, I guess we'll, we'll be back next week. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, this probably will still be ongoing and, and we'll have more to say next week. So thank you for listening. Have a good week.